Um, okay, so with that said, yeah, like when you begin with the what we've been calling kind of the liberalist conception, you own your body. Your body's yours. Um, but it's still in systems theoretical terms, it's an open question as to what ownership means. Do you own the bacteria in your gut or do they own themselves in some way because they are, you know, seeking their own autopoiesis? Does ownership mean control? And is that sufficient or not? Because, you know, do you control your body? That's a real question. Do you control your moods? You know, to a degree, yes. Do you control your heart rate? No. Can you control your breath? You know, sometimes when you're swimming, things like that. So what does ownership mean? What does control mean? These, these definitions kind of evaporate from importance when you're looking at your body as a hollow biont with a psychic system structurally coupled to it. Yeah, that question of ownership is really interesting. And I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who've been put through a unit of this, if you've been to university and done the kind of humanities science course, but that Henrietta Lacks, uh, she, she got cancer and they were able to extract without consent or, or knowledge, I believe, her cancer cells and grow them in laboratories. And they're actually all over the world now and every, every laboratory has HeLa cells in it. I think they've, ha they've recently added other strains too, but they're essentially immortal cells that will reproduce outside of the body. But the question is, is they stole them, does she own them? And their family has been in a protracted legal battle over this question, which again, gets pretty deep and philosophical when you actually have to get into the details of like what ownership and what having having a body, even that language is really makes it really difficult to parse these issues. That's interesting. Yeah. So my general critical attitude towards what I'm going to call kumbaya post-humanism is when these scholars sitting in their university departments, just like any other scholar in any other university department. Um, and then they write about how, you know, these cancer cells are subject to ethical concerns, specifically rights or legal concerns. Um, the same thing could be said about oceans and rainforests. Ocean oceans and rainforests are persons or personages, and they should have rights also. So this language of starting with rights is, is, of course, liberal and has to do with ownership. Does the ocean own itself? Is it useful to think in these terms or not? Um, Eric and I have been pushing for a kind of model without personage at the center, with, with, with processes at the center. But as soon as we talk about post-humanism in terms of, you know, we have an ethical responsibility to the ocean... Not that it's bad to say we have an ethical responsibility to the ocean, but what are you really saying? Are you saying that the ocean has liberal rights? Because if that's what post-humanism is to you, then it's more like hyper-humanism or hyper-liberalism saying that we're going to give the waterfall some rights to, to not be polluted or not have plastic dumped into it. Yeah, and this is this is a major concern in posthumanism. I think I believe Carrie Wolf talks about this at at length in what is posthumanism about the sort of, you know, just because we're doing animal rights, for example, just because we're talking about animals or, you know, quote unquote natural beings, uh it's not that we're we're not necessarily being posthumanist. We are like if we're talking about extending a rights model 
and extending rights, you know, the first things to get rights are going to be the what they call the charismatic megafauna, the cute stuff, right? The things that have faces, the things that have, you know, some kind of appeal. You can put them on a television show or paste them on a poster, and then you can start a uh, protest over them like baby seals or something like that, right? So it's it'll be really uneven and very partial and... You know, it just seems like it's not, and and then the whole human rights model is obviously like quite anthropocentric, right? So you're not really post-humanist, even if you are animal rights, you know, like Pete Singer or someone like that, you know, who, who, who Carrie Wolf is quite critical of, even though he's, you know, quite grateful for this whole movement that's emerged as well around animal rights and animal studies. <clears throat> so yeah, you mentioned it's going to be uneven. First, we're going to give rights to probably the great apes and maybe elephants and dogs. But when do when do the uh, bacteria in your gut get uh, <laughs> rights? Because like drinking a glass of whiskey, if that's if they have rights, drinking a glass of whiskey is basically committing genocide on them temporarily. So, um, yeah, and even outside of animal studies, the the one person. I think we we did this on an episode like two years ago when we had to name who we thought was the most overrated philosopher or overrated theorist. And I th- I'm pretty sure I said Donna Haraway. I might get in some trouble for that. But, you know, Donna Haraway, Cyborg Manifesto, I've read it in probably three different grad studies courses in, I think, three different disciplines as well. So it gets read all the time. But uh, she she committed the great sin of rejecting autopoiesis. So she doesn't like autopoiesis because as most people think the first time they hear it, it sounds really weird to say all, all systems are closed or that something is self-creating. So she wants to make up a new word, as uh, academics are prone to do, saying, um, quote, nothing makes itself Nothing is really autopoietic or self-organizing. So to make it sound better for her, she does what academics do and makes up a new word, sympoiesis. Sympoiesis, quote, is a word proper to complex, dynamic, responsive, situated historical systems, dot, dot, dot. Sympoiesis enfolds autopoiesis and generatively unfurls it and extends it. So we've been talking about autopoiesis for a while, uh, four weeks, and then our, our previous series on it. And autopoiesis doesn't mean like you create yourself in a vacuum. If you suck all the oxygen out of the room that I'm sitting into, my autopoiesis is not going to last very long. So I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what autopoiesis is, is claiming. And if you understand autopoiesis, you don't need nothing called sympoiesis, which is entirely redundant and unnecessary. So to understand autopoiesis, it needs to be used in its technical, uh, dare I say, scientific sense, not the sense that you actually believe that something creates itself out of nothing. Are we doing science, Eric? Is this on the science side? I, I was just I was just thinking about this because I as a humanities scholar, I've obviously I've been steeped in kind of the 
I don't know what you call it. It's not anti-science. That just makes you sound like an anti-vaxxer. But like, you know, the suspicion of science, I guess you could say. That's very common, the kind of postmodern skepticism, whatever you want to call it. I've been steeped in that. And and though I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a skeptic of the value of science, I do... I am very aware of the language of, you know, saying this is science, this is not science, this is pseudoscience, because, you know, that language also has a history of, of being used to oppress people and exclude people and to make ideas that just are just not familiar or non-Western ideas seem like bullshit, garbage, mythology, whatever. And it's just, it's been another tool in the toolbox for kind of white western male domination and and I'm very aware of that when so when I use the term science I try to think of it more in like an active collective pursuit rather than an evaluation system where it's like you know this is science this is not science your your words mean nothing cuz you're not a scientist it's it's been it's it's yeah yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, we should pay attention to scientists, but we also have to be very careful of who we listen to and how the media tends to present scientific experts on things can be very, you know, you, you got to take a close look at that before you just jump in and say, well, that's science, so I'm going to believe it. Well, I've heard people say similar things to what you're saying, and it sounds a little out there. Um, so what do you mean that science is this institutional like meant to maintain its own exclusivity because I, I was i was referring to uh i guess maturana and varela's method they coined the term autopoiesis as far as i know as, as a description of what organisms do with respect to their environment so where is your what is your skepticism here more specifically i mean the big the big clue <laughs> I was just going to say the big clue for me that autopoiesis is is good science is that it was com it was nearly completely rejected and looked at <laughs> as sus with suspicion by the scientific community. So whenever an idea comes out that gets all this pushback from the scientific community, it tends to say that there's something there. Maybe the idea itself isn't right, but there's something wrong with the state of science when that happens. And you got to you got to pay attention to those uh conjunctures or those those uh those gaps, those ruptures. So, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, what it, you probably know this better than I do. What has been the effect of, you know, systems theory in biology? Cuz we are talking about social uh systems theory mostly in terms of social systems. What do you know of it in biology and the way those models have been adjusted or or had to adapt with the notion of autopoiesis? Well, when you showed me uh, Lumen a couple years back, I was very interested in systems theory after that. And obviously uses this term autopoiesis quite a bit. And I looked into it. I'm like, oh, this this term comes from a couple of biologists we mentioned, Maturana and Varela, from their their Chilean, I believe. And the, I don't know. It's been dubbed the Santiago theory or something like that. Um, but yeah, autopoiesis is originally a term used to describe the unity of a living individual, rather than rather than the way. Like I'm I'm going to bungle this completely, but the way the sort of you know, the neo, I'll call it the neo-Darwinian zeitgeist of the time was not looking at individuals. It was looking at genes and how genes interact with environments and 
the individual was simply, you know, ground to nothing between those two, you know, grindstones, environment, genes. The individual entity really didn't matter to these sorts of, you know, population biologists, neo-Darwinian geneticists. And so this term is is meant, again, to focus back on what you might call the individual organism or what you might call ontogeny, the development of the organism, as opposed to just phylogeny, which would be more like the classical evolutionary historical perspective of like the the species as a whole and natu- how natural selection interacts with populations. So they wanted to bring focus back to the individual, uh, but in a very different way with this term, obviously, with the idea of self-making and self-organizing systems rather than just a kind of individual that's a a vehicle of genes and a and a vessel for environmental influences and with no agency in it, in itself. But you could also ascribe autopoiesis if you wanted to. You could shift it from the individual to the species, and in that case, the species would be the system vis-a-vis an environment. Yeah, you could. Um, you know, I think. Maturana and Varela, I think one of them, one of them at least was quite skeptical of doing yeah, this. Yeah, they didn't, I, I, I forget too, but one of them didn't like what Lumen did. Yeah, because for them, you know, the basic unit is the cell. And this is going to be the same for Gaia theory in a certain way. Like the basic unit of life is the cell, which is why the virus is not a living thing because a virus is not a cell with a nucleus, right? So the basic unit of life is a cell. And so autopoiesis is modeled after the cell with all its different parts. And some of those parts originally existed outside of the cell and millions of years ago, they were incorporated into it. That's how evolution works in symbiosis, Uh, term we'll come back to. Um, But um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, uh, lost my train of thought. Okay, so where were we with Haraway? We can deal with this quickly for a second. Um, Haraway says, nothing makes itself, nothing is really autopoietic or self-organizing. In the words of the Inupiat computer world game, earthlings are never alone. This is the radical implication of sympoiesis. She wants to replace the word. And frankly, I I don't really have any idea what this means because autopoiesis does not mean alone and could never occur alone. What autopoiesis does is draws the distinction between an individual, which could be an individual cell, it could be an individual group of cells even. It could be an individual species if you want to take it that far. But autopoiesis could never occur alone. It can only ever occur in an in an environment that has the right stuff in it. So like I said, if you sucked all the oxygen out of the room that I was sitting in, then my my autopoiesis of my body would stop after about 45 seconds. So what does she mean by this? She goes on to say that, quote, cells, organisms, and ecological assemblages, unquote, are sympoietic arrangements, which apparently means they live together. Um, we don't need a theoretical term for this. Autopoiesis already covers this, despite her saying that we're going to extend the definition of autopoiesis. 
But the rest of this chapter is like word salad. I really tried to find where she explained why this was not autopoiesis, and I could only conclude that she didn't pay that much attention to what autopoiesis actually means. Because, of course, what she lists as cells, organisms, and ecological assemblages do not appear in isolation, but no systems theorist ever said they did. That's not what closure means. What it means is that systems make decisions and selections to perpetuate itself, but always in an environment. And they don't interfere with each other's decision-making. Yeah, I mean... Um, directly, at least. They do indirectly. Just like my my body doesn't want me to podcast right now. It wants me to go lay down on my futon. 